0: Sunday, April 2nd, 1865. Jefferson Davis rose and prepared for church, as he had every other Sunday. He walked to St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, a city that had been relatively untouched by the fighting throughout the war. Google shows Richmond only 108 miles from Washington, D.C., but the capital of the Confederate government had been spared the treatment given to southern cities such as Atlanta and New Orleans. This morning, the service was interrupted by the arrival of a telegram from Robert E. Lee. The Union Army was finally headed for Richmond, and he doubted they could be stopped. The message closed with, I advise that all preparation be made for leaving Richmond tonight. Davis read the message, then rose and left the church. Slowly, quietly, other members of the Confederate leadership began slipping out. The people in the pews knew something was about to happen, little did they know that their city would be open for Union occupiers that very night. The idea that Richmond could be defeated wasn't completely ruled out by its residents. In 1862, George McClellan had moved almost to the city's edge before being beaten back by Robert E. Lee. When seven days of fighting ended, McClellan's exhausted men had fallen back to a position where they could rest under the protection of Union gunboats on the James River, having lost 16,000 men. During those seven days, Lee, for a short time, thought he had the opportunity to completely smash McClellan's army. Although he would end up losing over 20,000 men, his army had beaten back the invaders and would try to make use of the gained initiative through the Maryland Campaign. In June of 1864, Ulysses Grant began what would become nine months of trench warfare outside of Petersburg, Virginia. Petersburg was a crucial supply center and the junction of five railroads. For three days, federal forces attacked the city but were repelled by General P.G.T. Beauregard's men. Beauregard held Grant off long enough for Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia to arrive. And at that point, the Union troops began digging in, eventually creating a trench network that reached the suburbs of Richmond. By winter, Grant had over 100,000 men surrounding the city, with Lee's defenders numbering about 40,000. So the city of Richmond was not isolated from the war. There were hospitals filled with Confederate soldiers and several prisons. Captured Union officers endured harsh conditions at Libby Prison, a former food warehouse which was basically open to the elements. Its windows had bars, but no other covering, and food and medical attention were scarce. Still, conditions were better than those endured by enlisted men at the Belle Isle prison on the James River. Prisoners lived year-round in tents surrounded by a stockade. For a time, that prison was run by Henry Wirtz, who would later go on to administer the prison at Andersonville. His treatment of prisoners there would lead to his trial and execution after the war. A year before Grant appeared on Richmond's doorstep, the city had suffered bread riots as residents protested the crippling cost of food. So, they may not have had shells falling on their heads, but the people of Richmond knew very well that there was a war on. Things were grim, but they still had General Lee. At this point, Lee was more trusted than even Jefferson Davis, and many of the city's residents believed that he would find a way to save them. Davis, too, had faith in Lee, but as a precaution, Verena Davis and their son had been sent south to Charlotte, North Carolina a few days earlier on March 30th. Back to April 2nd. The fall of Petersburg is imminent and Lee knows he doesn't have the men to protect Richmond. Davis leaves the church and gives the order at the War Department to begin evacuation of the city. The Confederate government had been planning for this eventuality, but there was still a huge amount of work to be done now that the deadline was set. As the news traveled throughout Richmond, some of the people began to panic. Not only would blue-suited federal soldiers be walking the streets soon, but the city's enslaved population knew full well that a Union invasion meant their freedom. The city council ordered whiskey warehouses cleared out. And as the liquor poured into the gutter, well, eyewitness accounts actually speak about people scooping up and drinking liquor from the gutters. The official order to evacuate was issued between two and three in the afternoon. Those who chose to leave would have to do so by horse and carriage or on foot. The trains were occupied moving the seat of government south. Night would soon fall, The soldiers were leaving and the regular officers of the law would have their hands full. Until the Federals began marching in on Monday morning, the city would be without law and order. That night, Davis and his cabinet boarded a train headed for Danville, Virginia. As they left, fires were set to destroy goods that could be captured by the Union. The fires quickly blazed out of control and swept through the city. A famous courier and Ives print shows the bridge leaving Richmond hopelessly packed with refugees as the city behind them burns. The next day Union troops would enter the city and raise the United States flag without firing a shot. Davis's train took most of the night to get to Danville. When they pulled into the station they were welcomed by the residents of the city. Not all was lost, at least to Jefferson Davis. Joseph Johnston had an army in North Carolina, as did Kirby Smith in Texas. He felt that losing the capital might even work to the South's advantage. Without large cities to defend, an army could be free of entanglements and move throughout the country, striking constantly at entrenched Union troops. At one point, he spoke of consolidating the armies remaining along with those southern men who had not yet been conscripted and creating a force of nearly 200,000 men who would be focused solely on attacking the Union armies. Of course, without control over the cities, it would be impossible to find, train, and supply such an army. On April 4th, from Danville, Davis issued a proclamation stating, Relieved from the necessity of guarding particular points, our army will be free to move from point to point to strike the enemy in detail far from his base. And as Abraham Lincoln toured the remains of Richmond, surrounded by people who had just gained their freedom, Davis vowed to meet the foe with fresh defiance, with unconquered and unconquerable hearts. Davis was planning the future of the Confederacy in what was essentially a news blackout. Telegraph wires were down, and the only information reaching Danville was the tales told by soldiers and refugees. On April 8th, Lee sent a note to Grant, setting up an appointment to speak at a site called Appomattox Courthouse. The last, best hope of the Confederacy saw that any further fighting was futile, and would only result in needless casualties. The South needed men to rebuild, not to sacrifice themselves uselessly. Davis was floored. If Lee had surrendered, those other armies could have the same idea. He needed to get to a safe place. At this point, the Confederacy only existed while he was not captured. He and his cabinet boarded a train to Greensboro, North Carolina, leaving Virginia to the Federals. His small government in exile was not welcomed in North Carolina. In fact, the people there worried that aiding and sheltering them would lead to reprisals from the Union Army later. Sherman and his army were about 50 miles away. Generals Beauregard and Johnson advised that Davis contact Washington and begin peace talks. Davis refused and chose to continue traveling south. With the rails tied up, he was forced to mount his horse, leaving Greensboro behind him. In his absence, Johnson would surrender to Sherman, but things would not go well. With Lincoln at its head, the Union planned to reincorporate the South back into the Union, restore its governments and institutions, and heal the wounds of the war. With Lincoln shot at Ford's Theater and many in the North believing that John Wilkes Booth acted on Jefferson Davis's direct orders, the end of the war would be considerably harsher and more punishing to the South. A proposed surrender agreement that would have allowed for amnesty and restoration of rights was rejected by the new Johnson government and a new era had begun. Under the new terms, Johnston surrendered all troops east of the Mississippi. Meanwhile, Davis traveled to Charlotte, a city his family had already fled. He kept the ideal of a Confederate cause alive as he moved through South Carolina, cheered by the people in his path. He refused to give up, even as the troops in the West discussed surrender terms. Davis convened a meeting to adopt some definite plan upon which the further prosecution of our struggle shall be conducted. Not finding any support, he walked out of the gathering, leaving his former officials to begin dismantling the Confederacy. On May 3rd, the party entered Washington, Georgia. Some Confederate treasury money that had traveled with Davis was used to pay off troops nearby. The final disposition of the Confederate treasury will have to be a subject for another episode. Davis planned to travel west with a few supporters and continue the war from Texas. He felt that allying with the Plains Indians would allow the Confederacy to expand west and fend off the Union. On May 9th, it was raining, and some Union troops came across the small group. Davis may have grabbed his wife's shawl to cover his face or for protection from the rain, and as he tried to flee, he was finally captured. Although even the Union officers present would deny it, rumors would spread that Jefferson Davis had been captured in women's clothes. It was only then that Davis would give it up. The war was over. The debate regarding how Jefferson Davis was dressed when he was captured would go on for a few decades. This is actually a letter published in the New York Times in 1926, responding to a series of letters about whether or not Davis was wearing a dress upon his capture. The letter writer says, The facts are that President Davis was never a very robust man in the closing days of the war in Richmond and his subsequent escape from there had greatly reduced him physically. In addition, he was suffering from a severe cold at the time of his capture, which was early in the morning, and to protect him from the cool morning air, Mrs. Davis threw around his shoulders the nearest thing she could lay her hands on, which happened to be a shawl. Out of this grew the story of women's clothes. This explanation is unnecessary for anyone who has ever read histories of Mr. Davis and is written only that those not acquainted with the man in his life may know the great injustice done him.